Welcome to the Sunset Community Church podcast. You're listening to sermon audio from our Sunday morning services. For more information about Sunset Community Church, visit us online at sunsetcommunity.church. Can I get an amen? I mean, come on. I, that was silly of me to play that before my message, because how am I going to follow that up? Can we just say amen right now? If you don't know, if you haven't heard that before, that was Pastor S.M. Lockridge. His S.M. stands for Shadrach Meshach Lockridge. What a name, huh? Pastor S.M. was the pastor of Calvary. I'm going to take this off, because I can. <laughs> uh, pastor, S. Um, pastor Lockridge was the, the pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego, for 41 years, and this uh, particular uh, uh, kind of poem, poetic description of, of our King, of Jesus, was given about 30 plus years ago at the end of about an hour-long sermon, and if that doesn't get you up to worship, I don't know what will. Um, and I, and I, I remember I remember seeing and hearing this about, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. It kind of made the rounds on the internet like things do. And as I was thinking about this theme that we're in, as we're trying to describe the kingdom of God, I thought, man, what a, what a great opening uh, for our gathering today. And so, uh, yeah, what, what a man of God he was in his faithfulness and his, his uh, ability to unpack God's word. So maybe one of the one of the greatest pastors you've never heard of there is Pastor Lockridge. So um, this morning we are continuing in a series called Kingdom Come, and we started it two weeks ago. Uh, many of you had to engage last week because of the snow. About a dozen folks made it uh, here in person. Uh, I, I told our leadership team and my family, said, I don't care how much it snows. I'm getting to the building Sunday, uh, and whoever can make it can make it. Um, but we had, a, we had a good time for those that were here. And uh, what we've been doing is we've been looking at how Jesus describes his kingdom. In Matthew chapter 13, uh, Jesus tells a, a series of parables, of illustrations, where he says the kingdom of heaven is like dot, dot, dot. And uh, we noted a couple weeks ago that in Matthew's gospel, the phrase is kingdom of heaven. In Mark and Luke's gospel, it's the kingdom of God. Both mean the same thing. And what we've learned so far in our look at um, some of the first parables in Matthew 13 is we've seen that the kingdom of God is uh, the, transpo- the transforming power of the kingdom. We saw that in the first parable, the parable of the sower. And then we saw that there will be an eventual judgment that the kingdom of God brings to this earth. And we saw that in the parable of the weeds. And then we saw last week that the kingdom of God grows in surprising ways. Uh, That it maybe seems to start small, but it eventually uh, grows into such a mighty force that the whole world knows about it. And, and so this, that last, these last parables, the mustard seed and the yeast, were given in Jesus' time 2,000 years ago. And now here we are, a result of that kingdom growth today. And so this morning, we're going to finish out uh, our look at Matthew chapter 13 on Jesus' teachings of the kingdom. And we're going to see two more themes in our parables today. We're going to see the priceless value of the kingdom and then our response to the kingdom. And so I'm going to pray for us this morning as we, as we look at these things together. Father, what a, what a great reminder of who you are as king, as Pastor Lockridge spoke so eloquently so many years ago. Far greater than we can understand. Far more beautiful and perfect and holy and gracious. You're a God of justice 
and of mercy. Those don't compete with each other, but you are fully both of those things. You are 100% grace. You are 100% truth, Lord. And in Jesus, the fullness of God is known. And so as we look at these teachings that Jesus brought 2,000 years ago, and as we wrestle with the implications of them for our life today, I pray that you would draw us deeper into your heart, not into a religious organization, not into a building, but into a kingdom, into a family, into an identity that is shaped by your kingship. And so we ask, Father, as we look at these parables today, that you would translate them, Lord God, from our head to our heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there is no doubt uh, that people uh, in our country are increasingly claiming no religious affiliation. Uh, But the reality is America is still largely a Christian nation. Uh, I did some research this last week, and according to the Pew Forum, 70% of Americans still claim to be Christian And you can still find in almost every town and city in America a bunch of churches. And Renton's no different than that. So 70%. Uh, In Seattle, however, that number is a bit smaller, actually significantly smaller. Only 52% of people that live in Seattle claim to be Christian. But there's something I found even more interesting. Uh, Only 48% claim to actually have a certain belief in God. So 52% claim to be Christian, but 48% are, not, are only certain about God. So there's a disconnect, right? 4% of people in Seattle say that they're Christian, but don't actually know if there is a God. I found that interesting. So I asked myself, well, where's the disconnect? If you can say you're a Christian, but not really believe in God. I think one of the disconnects that we see is the difference between belief and trust. You know, we we will say very casually that we believe something to be true. But do, do we trust that belief enough to let it impact our lives? To let it work itself out in such a way that we act and live differently based on that belief? I was thinking about this in terms to, to one of my sons when he was really little. Uh, we had a, a staircase that went down to our basement in our house when we lived in Spokane. And, and I remember him standing at the top step. And I was just a few steps down. And I said, jump to me, buddy. And he, he looked at me. And he looked at the stairs. And he knew that he could do it. He knew that I would catch him. But he didn't have enough trust to actually jump. I mean, three steps. I was practically, my hands were practically under his armpits. It took a while for him to know what was true and then act on that truth. (laughs) Uh, Not a short time later, probably a year or so later, uh, I wasn't even ready for the jump, and he did it. (laughs) I barely caught him before he hit the floor. But his trust had grown, and his belief had resulted in action. And you know what's interesting is we look at corporations and organizations Uh, that are trying to get their employees and their leadership to really value each other, to really trust each other. They don't spend lots of training on belief, right? Do you believe these things to be true? They spend training on trust. Maybe you've done the trust fall. That's Lavelle's favorite thing to do to pop on people when they're not looking for it. 
Jesus, when he was walking on the earth, he, he began to, to gather large crowds as he began to speak, right? He was like, he was the popular thing in town. And as people began to, 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 to show up to his teaching, then they's like, man, I want to be close to this guy. I mean, look how many people are coming out. He, he means, he must mean something. He must be important. And so uh, as these individuals would approach Jesus, they would say, hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus would say, hey, that's great. But Jesus knew their heart. And so oftentimes he would challenge them, well, if you really want to follow me, then are you willing to do it at the expense of not being with your family? Like, ooh, I don't know about that. Well, one guy is like thinking, I, I can imagine he was thinking like, if I follow Jesus because so many people are showing up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have some privilege and, and maybe I, we'll probably stay in really nice places and travel around the country. And, and so Jesus, knowing the heart, he says, hey, if you want to follow me, that's cool, but we don't even have a place to lay our head down. In other words, life is probably going to be tough on this journey and the, that was too much for this individual to follow him. So do you believe me is the question that, Jesus asks, but then do you trust me? And we see this work out with Jesus' closest circle of friends. Like, they believe him, but man, as soon as he was getting ready to go to the cross, what does Peter do? He denies him three times. So if you believe me, then trust me. Walk with me. Follow me. Be a part of what I'm doing. Be a part of my kingdom. So it, it didn't take much faith to show up when Jesus was preaching, or even follow him to his next destination. And it doesn't take much faith to show up on Sunday morning either. So what about trust? We should ask ourselves then, what steps am I willing to take to really follow Jesus, to really be a part of what he's doing? What am I willing to give up to be a part of his kingdom and to be close to him? Last week we looked at the first parable first part of Matthew 13, where Jesus is giving a series of illustrations, that we call them parables, of what the good news of his kingdom is like. And he uses this phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. And these illustrations that Jesus would then give, they're rooted in his ministry and they're also rooted in this model prayer he gave from Matthew chapter 6. You may know it as the Lord's Prayer. And in Matthew chapter 6, he says this, to, for us to pray... Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now that's a prayer we can pray with belief, but what about the action that results from that prayer? What if God were to answer that prayer for us? Well, that's a whole other ballgame, right? And so this prayer is what orients us today as his people to live in the world, but also know that our true citizenship is in the kingdom of God. And so it's in this same tension that our belief in Jesus has to also include our trust in him. The prayers we pray, the songs we sing, we, these are, we declare these things to be true, but as soon as we say amen, as soon as we walk out the door back to our cars, our actions, the way we live our lives, are meant to display the trust we have in King Jesus. So this morning we're going to finish out this chapter as we look at Jesus' last few parables from Matthew 13. And in these parables, we're going to see a couple of images of how Jesus describes the value of belonging to his kingdom. And then we'll see 
as he sums up this section of teaching, the role that we, as his kingdom citizens, have in telling others about him. So if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 through 52. If you don't have a Bible in the pew in front of you, I gave you a little shortcut there. Just turn to page 840, and right at the top there, you'll find verse 44. And we're going to do what we did uh, last week, is I'm going to have you read this yourself. Um, Two weeks ago, I made a mistake and put a wrong uh, verse reference on there, and I've been feeling bad about it ever since, so I want to make sure that uh, I don't make a mistake again. You go ahead and read these just eight verses, uh, Matthew 13, verses 44 through 52, then we're going to unpack these together. So just take a minute right now, whether you're at home or right here, open up your app, pull up your Bible and read those eight verses. Enough people are looking around now, so I think we're, we're good. So in those eight verses you just read, there are four parables, four illustrations. The, the last one is very easy to miss, and we'll, we'll revisit that in a minute. But let's first look at these first two. As we consider this theme that Jesus wants to draw out about what his kingdom is like, and the theme is of the value of the kingdom. So you just read these. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold all he had bought in that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So again, Jesus is using some illustrations that that may not resonate with us in the same way as they did back then. Uh, You know, earlier in this chapter, he's been using illustrations that were very uh, relevant to the farming culture of the day. And so these two illustrations, they sound a little odd to us, but they're not as odd for the original hearers of this as they may be for us. Let me give you a little cultural context. 2,000 years ago, there was no such thing as a bank. (laughs) When you had something valuable, when you had lots of money, it was with you. It was in your house. 2,000 years ago, there was not ring.com to have security system around your house. Nobody had guns or defenses with electrified wires. So if you were a rich person and you had a lot of money, guess who knew it? Everybody. 
And guess who knew where that money would be kept? Everybody, with you in your house. And so it was actually a very common custom to split up the money. Okay, I'm going to have some with me in my house. Uh, I'm going to have some in a, maybe in a safe spot near the house. But then I'm going to take a large amount and I'm going to hide it. Because in their day, hey, uh, the Romans are occupying us now. But hey, we remember before that the Greeks and before that the Babylon. Like things happen, right? So if, if our country gets overrun by a marauding army, at least I know that money that's deeply hidden is not going to be found. So legitimately, people would bury their money in a field. They would find a safe place to hide it. So, cultural context, right? The other one is this uh, illustration of a merchant of pearls. So this is somebody who's probably wealthy, and uh, he, this is what he does for a living. He buys and sells pearls. And so in both of these instances, there's a kind of a similarity, right? In, in the one instance, there's, there's a man who stumbles upon the field. He wasn't looking for anything in particular, but man, when he found it, he was willing to give up everything to get it. In the other instance, the pearl merchant was looking for it, but he was surprised at this one pearl that he found that was better than anything he'd ever seen in his entire life. And so even though he was looking for it, his response was the same. So this is what Jesus is drawing out. Whether you look for it or whether you stumble upon it, when you see it, when you understand it, the value is worth everything. You're willing to sacrifice for it. And so then it brings us to the question, and this is what I imagine Jesus wants his hearers to consider. Is being a part of God's kingdom worth the cost? Is it worth it? Now we know the good news of the kingdom that Jesus preached, that he demonstrated, is that we get to trade our sinful, messed up, broken lives for a redeemed and righteous one. Instead of trying to struggle to find our place and purpose in this short time that we have on earth, we get to know and be known by the sovereign God who created all things. In our series in Colossians last year, one of the key verses was from Colossians 1, 16-17. For in Him... All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's our king, as Dr. Lockridge would say. Not an earthly king who rules in selfish, selfish power, but a selfless king who came down to serve in love, to be known and to know us, to forgive, to restore, to realign. In Jesus, we find the deepest answers to the questions that our hearts long for, answers about belonging and purpose. And through Jesus, we are invited into the kingdom of God. So this is the treasure that is found in the field. This is the pearl that is worth everything. And the question is, are you all in? Are you all in? There's this, uh, this sign that the Seattle Seahawks have up in their locker room before they're going out to play in the field. I think they still have it up. And every player that sees it on their way out hits it. And it's a, it's a symbol of their commitment to each other. 
And the, the sign says, I'm in. I'm in. Like everything that I've prepared for and practiced for and really for them lived for in that moment, we're, we're going we're gonna to live it out right now. I, I'm all in. Nothing's going to be left out on the field. And this is the, the image that Jesus is conveying in these two parables. That when you truly know the message of the kingdom, man, you want to be a part of it. Now, let me be clear. Jesus wasn't telling these parables to indicate that we can buy our way into heaven. That you can do something to earn your way into his good favor. And if you've been a part of a church that has even hinted at that, I'm sorry. Because it's just not true. But what these parables communicate is that there is nothing more important than knowing and being known by God. And so as Jesus is sharing the good news of the kingdom, it's not framed as a a boardroom transaction, but as an invitation to exchange everything you have for a brand new life. Jesus would later say this to his disciples. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. So are you in? Are you all in? This is not a rhetorical question. So let me ask you. Are, is being a part of God's kingdom, is it worth the cost? Is being a part of God's kingdom worth the cost? Jane agrees. One person. <laughs> Let me ask that again. Is being a part of God's kingdom worth the cost? Are you sure about that? <laughs> Some years ago, I was in, um, when my wife and I were living in Spokane, we worked with an organization that connected families with refugees that were coming into the area. And at that time, Spokane would get about 400 refugees per year. And we got to meet with families that had lost everything due to war and persecution. I sat down and had coffee with one man from Iraq named Michael Paul. And Michael had been helped be a translator in the U.S. military. Michael had grown up as a Muslim. And Michael eventually gave his life to Christ. But that didn't fly well with his family and really with the people in his community to reject Islam and to embrace Christ. And so in three different occasions, Michael was beaten horribly. In one case, he was actually strung up in a room and tortured as they asked him to renounce his faith. Michael eventually was granted asylum in the United States, and he moved to Spokane, Washington, as a refugee. And as he shared his story to me, my first thought was, I can't relate at all. I've never had to give up anything like that to follow Christ. But you know what? This is not an uncommon story. Many people who have chosen to to live in the ways of the kingdom, they've given their lives to Christ, have had to literally 
give up everything. We have it pretty good, pretty comfortable here. If you're a Christian in America, the worst that could happen maybe is somebody will call you an uh, intolerant or ignorant or unscientific or whatever the, the labels are that are going around. But are you going to lose everything? No. This is not an uncommon story, but it is uncommon for me, for many of us. I, I grew up as a Christian. I didn't have to sacrifice anything. It was easy to be a Christian when I grew up. I mean, my biggest struggle growing up as a Christian was wishing I could have things that I didn't have, <laughs> right? Like, we, we moved every 18 months. We, did, we didn't have a lot of stuff as a family. We were fairly poor. My, that was my biggest struggle. And, and then as I got older and I got more stuff and I got more comfortable, I, my biggest challenge was I just wished I could have more. Oh, man, I got this thing, but I wish I had that thing, right? That's, that's the way our culture is wired, has trained us to think. And the Bible records these interactions that Jesus has with people who want to follow him. But being God, Jesus knows their hearts. He knows that they're not actually all in. They say they believe him, but they're not really willing to trust him with everything that they are. One of the most relevant interactions probably to the American culture is this interaction Jesus has with a rich young ruler. He's kept all the commandments. He's like a good church boy, right? He's done all the things. And Jesus says, great, you only need to do one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Then you can be my disciple. Now, now again, we don't want to take this to make it normative. To follow Jesus, you don't have to go and, and clean out your bank account today. But what Jesus knew is that for him, that I need a little more, I need a little more, I've attained all these things, this is where my comfort is, that was going to be a barrier for him to really be all in. And so when Jesus poked him where it hurt, <laughs> are you really willing to give it all up? It was too much. He couldn't do it. He couldn't follow Jesus. Now, again, let, let's be clear. Don't come away from this thinking Jesus doesn't want you to enjoy life or something stupid like that. This isn't about giving up uh, something you enjoy like coffee or cheeseburgers or intentionally making yourself poor. What this is about is about your heart. Uh, when I got married to, to Jessica, what it meant is it meant that no other woman from that moment forward was going to occupy the space in my heart that she would. Can you imagine how unhealthy our marriage would have been if it would have been otherwise? I love you, honey. I'm going to spend the rest of your life, my life with you. But in the back of my mind or over here, I, there's still some other women that I love. Like, no, that's not how it works. And so this is what Jesus is, he does to, to these people that say they believe him but aren't really willing to be all in. Is He says, man, what is it in your life that is a barrier for you to fully trust me, to be all in? And so I want you to take a minute right now and, and ask yourself that hard question. If, if Jesus was to identify something in your heart that needs to be left behind in order for you to be a full participant in his kingdom, what would that be? What desires 
what comforts, what aspirations do you have that are keeping you from fully following Jesus? I have to ask myself this question all the time. When Jessica and I first got married, we are sitting in my apartment. I think I've shared this before. And we had a, you know, our thrift store couch, and we had our TV, and we had the cars parked in the driveway. And I thought to myself, wow, I've never had any of this stuff. Huh, this is it. I, I'm, I'm content. And in a split second, I don't know if you've ever had this, it was like God spoke directly to me. Like, it was no doubt it was him. I didn't hear it audibly, but it was just there. Like, I felt like God said, Andrew, would you give it all up? And I said, no. And then I burst into tears. Because I knew I'd let things occupy a place in my heart that only he should. So again, this is not about intentionally making yourself poor or destitute. It's about asking, man, what is it that keeps me from being all in on the kingdom of God, from really fully trusting him? In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. And, and he says this on the heels of, of people worrying about what's, what they're going to have in their life. And Matthew 6 is a good chapter to meditate on if you're a worrier. He says, hey, uh, I'm going to give you what you need, but the order is important here. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then these things. When you get them, they're going to be in the right order. They're not going to occupy a, a place in your heart that's unhealthy and that keeps you from me. So do you believe Jesus? Good. If so, now trust him. I trust him. The kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God is like. There's two more parables that we just read that you read. Uh, one is the parable of the net. And this is essentially a, a different version of the parable of the wheat and the weeds that we looked at last week. If you remember that one, the wheat and the weeds are growing up together. The wheat being the people of God, the weeds being the people that have rejected God. And ultimately, there's going to be a separation. The, this is just a... a this is, I think Jesus was talking to the fishermen that were hanging out in, in the crowd at this point. And he says, hey, the kingdom of God is like a net that catches all sorts of fish, but they're going to be separated out, the good fish from the bad fish. So again, using a, a fishing illustration here, that was a common way of fishing, not one rod and reel, but a giant net, right? It would just catch everything. And so this illustration, it circles back to the wheat and the weeds, and we see that in the kingdom of God, there are going to be those that have rejected God and continue in their sinful ways. And ultimately, those that have heard the, the message of the kingdom, that have rejected God, they're going to be judged accordingly. Well-known author C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. Before Jesus tells these parables in Matthew 13 that we've looked at, in Matthew 8, he illustrates hell to be this place outside of his kingdom. He calls it in a, a place of darkness. 
And contrary to our popular images of hell being a place where Satan lives and Satan uh, oversees it, no, that's not what hell is. What it is is hell is a place where Satan and his demons are going one day. It is for their judgment. But in the meantime, Satan's goal is to take as many people as he can with him. As God is building his kingdom, Satan is trying to keep people from going into it. And this is why Jesus came. This is why the, uh, the gospel writer John calls Jesus the light of the world. So that we can see the kingdom. So that we can see God. So that we can know him. And Jesus in John 3.16 says he came to what? To save the world. Not to condemn it, but to save it. And so we've looked at these parables, and, and there's three key themes that we've seen about the kingdom of God if we're to have a takeaway from Matthew 13. The one is kingdom growth. God's kingdom has grown, it will grow, and it's going to continue to grow until he returns. The other one is kingdom judgment. Those that have rejected the kingdom, there's going to be an account for that. But in the meantime, God's grace is evident in his delay of that. And then as we looked at today, the third theme from Matthew 13 is kingdom gain. That when we find the kingdom, we find everything. Kingdom growth shows us that we should never be discouraged. The good news of Jesus has grown, it is growing, and it will continue to grow until Jesus returns. Kingdom judgment shows us, and listen up, church, this is important. Kingdom judgment shows us that we are to never be less gracious than God in the world that we live in today. One day evil will be fully done away with, but what God really wants today is for people to repent, to find the kingdom, and to know his great love. And then kingdom gain shows us that the good news of the kingdom is worth more than the cost, than the cost of being his disciple. Whatever needs to be given up is worth sacrificing because the rewards are forever. So while these six parables have impact, this visual impact, Jesus ends with just one more illustration and we'll end this morning from this illustration as well. This illustration serves as a vision of what his disciples then and us today, his church, are to be about. So after sharing these illustrations, these six illustrations, Jesus says this. Have you understood these things? Yes, they replied. And then he says to them one last illustration. Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. There was a lot of people listening to him. There were teachers of the law, the Pharisees that were opposed to Jesus. They heard this. There was new followers of Jesus, new disciples that had heard this. And with this concluding illustration, Jesus connects the truth of the Old Testament to the new kingdom that he is bringing. And he does it in a way that challenges us to take an action step. 
And the action step is, as you are learning about the kingdom of God, you and I now have access to the beautiful, life-transforming truths to give to others. The kingdom treasure is now evident in our lives, and we can share it with others. And this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to understand the good news of the kingdom in such a way that we get to say, hey, Jesus, this way, let me show you him. Let me show you what it is worth. Let me introduce you to the one who loves you and redeems you and saves you and forgives you, gives you purpose, knows you, and wants to be known by you. So this is our role today, church, to know the kingdom and to lead others into it. And so in the days ahead, we're going to look at the implications of the kingdom of God. What does it mean for identity? What does it mean for the issues of the day? As kingdom citizens, there is a way that we live that reflects the kingdom values. And so I want to pray today for for us as we've heard this same charge that Jesus gave to his disciples, that we might bridge the gap between belief and trust. And if you here this morning have not placed your faith in Jesus, well, you've heard it. You've heard the message. And I hope you would respond to it. We'd love to pray with you and stand with you and welcome you into his kingdom. So I want to pray for us today. Let's bow our heads and as the worship team comes up, we'll respond in song as well. You, Father, are calling to us today as you have for generations. The ways of the kingdom, the message of the kingdom have been preserved for us in your word. But Lord, sometimes that word is is not bridged from our head to our heart. We nod to it, we, uh, we agree with it on Sunday morning, but then it's disconnected from the rest of our lives. Father, we thank you for your grace that brings us back to it. That even when we're corrected and and convicted by your word, it is a good thing. It is a reflection of your love. And so Lord, as your church, your body here at Sunset Community Church, I pray that we would demonstrate with our lives the worth of your kingdom. Lord, that what you planted inside of us would continue to grow, that we become more and more like your kingdom citizens. And for those that have not placed their faith in you, they don't believe you, they don't trust you, may today be the day that they ask themselves those questions. They respond, Lord, with a yes and an amen. That you would be the king that Dr. Lockridge so eloquently described. But not a king that is far off, but a king that is near. A king of their hearts, Lord. Holy Spirit, we need you. We can't do anything without your empowering presence in our lives. So we ask that you continue to sustain us and lead us in your ways. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Sermon Audio from Sunset Community Church. Sunset Community Church is located in Renton, Washington. For more information, visit our website at sunsetcommunity.church.